If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Who joined the Knights Templar? When they weren't waging war, what did the Templars get up to on a day-to-day basis? And how did they come to be associated with the Holy Grail? In today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, Emily Brafitt speaks to Professor Helen Nicholson to uncover the answers to some of your top questions about the medieval crusading military order. As always with our Everything You Wanted to Know series, The questions are drawn from a mixture of popular internet search queries and ones that you've submitted via our social media channels. And as long-term listeners might notice, after 15 years of service, we thought it was time for some fresh new music. We hope you like it as much as we do. We're going to be talking all about the Knights Templar today, so I think the really important question to start with would be, who were the Knights Templar? The Knights Templar were a military institution whose members took religious vows, like the vows of monks, but unlike monks, they did not remain in one place in a house praying. Their vocation was to protect Christians and Christian lands. I had a monastic rule and a monastic habit. So if you met a Knight Templar, or indeed any Brother Templar, you would know what the, that they belonged to that order because of the clothes that they were wearing. And they had the monastic round of prayers to say, but they weren't all the prayers that monks would say. They were a shortened version for religious orders who were on the road a lot, so the same as the secular canons who used to go around preaching and doing priestly things in the community. They were an adaptable group, and yes, they they literally laid down their lives for other Christians because they got killed on the battlefield. So Brendan Mitchell on Facebook has asked, when, where and why did they emerge? The trouble with that question is that when they started, they were very low profile, and so nobody recorded it. So the first record we really have of them is in January 1129 at the Council of Troyes in, I say, in Champagne in northeastern France, as it is now, where they're already established. They've got a master. The name of the name of their leader, Hugh de Pin, is mentioned. He's their founder, and then we have another few names of brothers mentioned who were there present as well. So we know by that time they were up and running. From what was written by contemporaries and by the next generation of writers, particularly Archbishop William of Tyre in the Kingdom of Jerusalem, it appears that they were founded at around 1120 and that they were first officially recognised by the church at the Church Council of Nablus in the Kingdom of Jerusalem. Putting together different contemporary and next generation reports, it appears what happens is we have a group of knights or warriors, they may not have called themselves knights at that period, who'd gone to Jerusalem originally on pilgrimage, who may have decided to settle in Jerusalem. It's not really clear how long they'd been there, who decided that what the kingdom needed was not just people that prayed, but people who could fight and who set themselves up as a group who would pray and serve God in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre as if they were monks or canons, but would also go out and fight against the enemies of Christ or anyone who attacked pilgrims and defend the holy places that the pilgrims came to. 
there'd been a big ambush of pilgrims on the road to Jerusalem in the previous year and clearly the Templars were needed. So this relates into another question we've had from Jeff Sang on Facebook. How connected were they actually with the church? They were part of the church. They're Catholics and there's nothing unusual about their beliefs at the time. So they're part of the church, they're subject to the Pope, and the Pope had excluded them from the authority of the bishops so they could operate as a free agent across the whole of Catholic Christendom. And theoretically, they were not subject to the secular rulers either, but in practice they had to be because they're warriors and they need to be able to work with the secular rulers. And this does become a tension between their secular loyalties and their loyalties to the church. Relating to that, how were they actually governed and organised? They had a, quite a complicated organisation because they are a supranational order. They have property right across Europe, from the west of Ireland to northern Germany, Poland, Portugal, um, Sicily, the Greek islands, and then, of course, in the Kingdom of Jerusalem. So this all needs organisation. At the top, there is the master, who becomes known later on as the Grand Master, to differentiate it from all the other masters of provinces. And then there is the... Um, various properties they have in the Kingdom of Jerusalem and the other Crusader states are organised under officials who are all answerable to headquarters, which initially was in the Aksa Mosque in Jerusalem. And then after Saladin captured Jerusalem in 1187, they moved their headquarters to Acre and then to Castle Pilgrim, um, south of Acre. As they acquired properties in the West that need to be administered, they divided their properties up into provinces under sort of linguistic divisions and then each of these has somebody in charge who's known as the master, which um, causes contemporaries some confusion and causes modern writers some confusion. Oh, so-and-so was the Grand Master of the Temple. No, he was the master of this particular commandery. And sometimes they're called Grand Commanders, just to make your life even more exciting. And then below them, you have the uh, commanders who are in charge of their manors or their larger estates. And the larger estates would administer not only the main house, but also the properties that are associated with it. And quite a lot of the property they were given at any rate in Britain was actually property to let. But they had a few, oh, they had quite, quite a few very small houses that associated with commanderies that might only have one brother in. And by the time you get down to the little houses with just one brother living in them, or maybe nobody at all, just a bailiff running the estates, you realise that's a long way away from Jerusalem. And so everything is top down. It's all organised from the top and people are appointed from the top and everything is answerable to the top. And the regulations of the order have, at the back of the manuscripts that we have now, lists of things that obviously come up at general chapters that are being discussed on what the master and convent, as they know, and the headquarters officials of the order had decided. And these sometimes involve people you know, in France or in Spain, but these cases actually ended up in the East to be decided. How did the order itself become so influential? It's because people in the West who had gone to the East on pilgrimage and seen what the order was doing and maybe were very grateful to them because the brothers had escorted them around the pilgrimage places and kept them safe on the road. Or people in the West who can't go on pilgrimage, and this is particularly the case for high nobles and kings and queens who have no way of leaving their kingdom. It just isn't feasible for them to do so. The moment they leave, they know that their estates will get invaded and they'll never get their land back. So they give donations of land or other rights, other forms of income to the Templars and ask for their prayers and say that this the income from these properties will go towards assisting what they're doing in the East. 
And as a result, the order is given land right across Catholic Christendom. But however, quite quickly, like other religious orders, donors realised that because the Templars needed the money, if you gave them land, they would, if you gave them marshy land, for example, they would put in the money to get it drained so it became productive. So if you have a large marshy field that you can't do anything with and you don't have the money to invest, give it to the Templars and they will develop it for you. Now, the Templars seem to catch on to this one and sometimes they refuse to accept land that's dubious, which is probably why they haven't got very much land in Wales, because much of Wales is not good agricultural land. So they wanted land. They could grow wheat on, which is high value, high protein grain. They could sell it for a lot of money. But what the donors often wanted to give them was land that wasn't worth very much because they wanted to get it off their hands. And again, if you were in land disputes with your neighbours and nobody could agree who this particular estate should belong to, it might be, for example, a family dispute over who should inherit it, one, one solution was to give it to a religious order. So you might give it to the Templars because then they could, as it were, hold it, not exactly in trust because it's now their land, but They'll hold it for the whole family. They will pray for the family. And it saves the whole family continue to fall out over it. So it makes it sort of neutral zone. So there's a multiplicity of reasons. And the result was that the Templars and other religious orders did very well. Which we can say is not necessarily good for the kingdom. No. And this is one of the issues which scholars debate over the fall of the Templars is one of the points that the King of France actually just wants to get the land back. So could you tell us about some key points or key moments in the Templars' relationship with the states and with the church? Because what you're saying, they've got a bit of a contention between where they fit in all of it. Yes, you have a privileged, exempt order, exempted from the having to obey the bishops and supposedly exempted from having to obey the king, operating across the whole of Catholic Christendom, obviously there are going to be um, clashes. And we have to remember that despite the fact they've taken religious vows, all these brothers still have um, a family. I say brothers, but there are some sisters too, but they stay put, they don't travel about. So for the purposes of this argument, we'll just concentrate on the brothers. So, for example... When King Henry II of England was in dispute with King Louis VII of France over lands on the Normandy-French border, so this is in the 1150s, 1160s, middle of the 12th century, the Templars at this point had not been around very long, but they had assisted the King of France during his, the Second Crusade, where the King of France had gone to the east, and they'd loaned him money. And they were also connected with the ruling family in England, the Angevins, partly through, in fact, not the Angevins themselves, but King Stephen's wife, Matilda Boulogne, was the niece of the early kings of Jerusalem. So she was linked to Jerusalem that way, and the Angevins take up this um, patronage of the Templars as a sh to show how concerned they are about Jerusalem and how they have a link with Jerusalem too. So Henry II suggested to Louis VII when they had this dispute over these lands on the Normandy-French border, known as the Vexin, that they should become the dowry of his eldest son, who was going to marry Louis's daughter, Margaret, and the Templars would look after the lands in the meantime. Well, the, the betrothed ch children were very, very young at this point. They're not even aged five yet. So it's going to be years and years before they can officially marry. So the King of France agreed with this, and the Templars held on to the land. And then about a year or 
later, the King of England announces that the marriage has taken place and the Templars should hand the land over to him. And the Templars did and promptly took refuge in his court in London. And it turned out, in fact, that these are all Templars who have been in the King of England's service. And the King of England rewards them and gives them properties in England and one of them becomes a member of his court. Another one is a commander of one of the Templars' houses elsewhere in, in England. And Louis was absolutely furious and there's nothing he could do. So Templars seem to keep their secular loyalties, even though they're now part of this international order. So that's a problem. There is this this pull between you have to keep the king on side and at the same time you're a religious order and your real interest is defending the Holy Land. It also means that when Richard the Lionheart arrives out of the East on the Third Crusade, he makes one of his supporters master the temple. And he expects the Templars and Hospitallers to fall in what he wants to do. And he gave Cyprus, the island of Cyprus to the Templars when well, he sold it to them because he conquered Cyprus, but he didn't want to stay on Cyprus to look after it. So he sold it to the Templars. They could administer it and um, give him any assistance he needed. And the Templars discovered they'd bitten off more than they could chew. They couldn't run the island. The people of the island revolted. And they went back to the king and said, we can't hold this island and can we have our money back? And Richard said, well, you can hand it back if you like, but I'm not giving you your money. So yes, beware when you're dealing with kings. So part of the history of the Templars and the other military orders is having to stay the right side of monarchs. And monarchs do help them. They give them money, they give them protection, but at the same time, they demand things that you might not want to give them. So we've looked at monarchs. I think the other question it'd be fair to ask would be, what was the general opinion of the Knights Templar amongst the general population? This is a question we've had from Rumham55 on Instagram. It's a good question because, of course, it's not so easily answered. If you were a Templar tenant, because the Templars had so many privileges, not having to pay taxes, not having to perform feudal dues, not having to attend the bishop's court, and being exempt from visitation in most cases by the bishop, and not, not all their houses, but many of them. If you were a Templar tenant, you could claim that you were one of the Templars' people. And so you also benefited from these exemptions. So you didn't have to do all these things, which was very nice. You put a cross on your house. And some of these crosses, particularly for the hospitalers, still exist. So um, obviously, rulers and bishops got very annoyed about this. and said, because they're tenants, they are not exempt. And of course, claiming exemptions, claiming things for people that aren't prepared to pay it is hard work. And most of the time, it just wasn't worth claiming it. So uh, for example, after the fall of the Templars in England, they had had a a new town at Baldock in Hertfordshire, and the sheriff turned up to organise everybody into what was known as tithings. And it seems the Templars had never bothered to do this because they were exempt from it. So obviously the locals were rather upset that now the sheriff says, oh, you have to be under proper law and order here now. They, oh, we were the Templars people. Yeah, but there aren't any Templars. They've been abolished. So the people of Baldock rioted. We're not putting up with this. We know our rights. So if you were a tenant, it was quite nice. However... If you didn't benefit from these privileges, you would be rather upset. So when King Edward I of England was trying to investigate what had happened to all the royal rights that his ancestors had had, and he discovered that many of them had been given away to religious orders, the person who was supposed, everyone's mill, they were supposed to use that person's mill and, and pay their dues there, and they're not going there, they're going to the Templar's mill or they're going to the Hospitaller's mill, which is much cheaper. And um, likewise, the bishops complained that the military orders Great thing, military orders found houses in obscure places because they get given this land that's on the borders or is slightly out of use. 
and they found their houses there and they have chapels and they use their chapels as a local parish church. That's great. They're providing um, spiritual services, which is fantastic. And the bishops approve of that up to a point. It's a problem when they start to compete with the local parish church and people are supposed to be going to the local parish church to get their children baptised, to get their marriage vows um, blessed, to um, also get the local priest in to give their final confession. And if they instead of which call in a priest from the military orders, then the parish church isn't getting those dues. So there's always people complaining. Of course, you hear more from the people who complain. So we have a lot of documentation from people who are complaining. My Lord, will you please take these rights off the Templars? We don't hear about the merchants who say, yes, 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 I'm doing really well out of this. We spoke a little bit earlier about the rules that the Templars followed. So could you just tell us a little bit about that? What exactly were these rules? The rules are really simply a list of guidelines for how to live live your daily life. So prayers they're supposed to say, the clothing they're supposed to wear, the food they have and how that varies according to the time of year, because of course there are fast days and there are high days and holidays, so the food varies a bit. The Templars don't have to fast heavily on the fast days, so they don't just have to stay on bread and water. They are allowed to eat meat more often than other religious orders do because they have to stay fit if they're going to go into battle because it's no good being a half-starved monk if you need to be able to stay on your war horse and handle a lance. So there's also guidelines about what you do if you're on campaign. You won't not be able to go to chapel, so you'll be able to say your prayers from your horseback, for example. And what about people who are associated with the order, who might be living in the order's house but are not full members, and what you do about them? And interestingly, women are no longer to be admitted, but in fact we know that they are admitted because they sometimes are mentioned in lists of witnesses at the end of donation charters or other legal documents. So it's general guidelines. Most likely they are not referred to every day. You only get the book out when there's an argument. That would be the normal way these things would be done in most institutions. Then after the regulations that were set up in 1129, there were further regulations or lists of customs and practices written down about the administration of the order and how the order operates when it's on campaign. And you are not, if you're the banner bearer, you are not allowed to lower the banner because if you've lowered the banner, you've lost. So do not lower the banner. Oh, yes, the people, the servants who are left in charge of the baggage, if they realise everything is lost, they should try and save the baggage. Don't leave it lying around for the enemy to plunder it. Try and get it away. And so, again, it all seems like common sense, but it's written down. And then, again, later, beyond the customs, there's um, what's been decided about various cases that have risen within the order. You know, somebody, somebody who stole butter, what do we do with him? Was he suspended from the order? Did he have to leave the order altogether? Was he allowed to come back into the order when he'd done some penance? And you might say, well, what, what about stealing butter? That's not important. Ah, it depends how much butter, doesn't it? And how often they're doing it for. So basically petty theft. And because the order's money was all supposed to be going to its holy vocation of defending Christianity, actually stealing butter was quite a serious offence because arguably you're stealing from God. And then at the very back of the manuscripts is the admission ceremony for normal brothers, knights and non-knights. And this bit of the manuscripts uh, is quite well rubbed. So it's obviously the bit that everyone uses. So you don't forget anything. And one of the things it stresses is that if you join this order, you must expect to do what you're told. You will not necessarily get a choice of where you go. So you could be sent anywhere in, within Catholic Christendom. 
we might go to the Holy Land, but you might not, which does suggest that some people join deliberately to go to the Holy Land. But also it seems from reading the regulations, particularly the mission ceremony, that they're prepared to take anybody. By the time the Templars were set up in the early 12th century, the traditional monastic orders mostly preferred to only take rich people who bring money in. But the new religious orders of the 12th century were much more open in their practices and you didn't have to come from a noble family. And the Templars and the Hospitallers, their, their sister military order, would take pretty much anyone who wanted to join because they always need people, not just to fight, but to do the work. It's perfect. You've come on to several of the questions that we've actually had asked by listeners here. We've had a question from TW on Twitter saying about the admission process. How did a person actually become a part of the Knights Templar? And I guess another question to ask here would be, what actually motivated people to join? Let's start with the how you become a member. The admission ceremony indicates that you have to petition, you have to ask, come to the house and ask if you can become a member. And they might say no to start off with, and you're, you have to be discussed. The brothers in the house will have to discuss whether they're prepared to admit you. Who can admit a Templar? This seems to vary because most of our information on this is from the trial because people explained how they joined during the course of the trial investigations. So it seems the it's probably the Grand Commander of the province who is going to admit you, and they will have with them two other brothers of good standing, and you need a priest brother as well, really, there too. And they'd normally admit you in the chapel, so... The practice appears to be, and here we are again, using the trial proceedings, although they're very unreliable. The people who want to join the order will turn up with their sponsors, their supporters, and their family. And the first few questions about why do you want to join and are you a suitable person to join and sending you away and we'll discuss it. And then we come back and say, all right, you can come in. The whole family will be there. But then the vows are just given quietly in the chapel without any distractions and the family has to wait outside. So we can imagine them peering through the door. So anyway, they are told that what they would have to do, they may have to be maybe sent anywhere in the um, Christian world, and or they may just stay where they are and serve God in their own place. And they have to make, give, give the three vows, which are to obey the authority, which in this case will be the commander of the house where they're based, but is in fact the grand master. And they ha should have no personal property, although, of course, they can use the order's property for what they're doing. And they should maintain chastity, which means no sexual involvement with anybody. And when they made the three vows, they also have to promise that they're going to defend Christians. And these vows are given to uh, God, our Lord Jesus Christ, and God's mother, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and all the saints, female and male, of the Christian church. After they've given their vows, the mantle is put on them, white or black, white for knights, black or dark coloured for non-knights, or they get a cap. And some brothers said that they were given a cord to tie around their waist as a symbol of their vows. So then you sit on the floor and they'll read out the rule to you. And I can imagine that very few of them actually remembered it because this is a very exciting day. So you then have a period when you're still supposed to be learning about the order. But an older brother will be assigned to you to tell you what goes on in the order. But unlike full-blown monastic orders, the traditional monastic orders like the Benedictines, the military orders, the Templars, the Hospitals, the Teutonic Order, quite quickly dropped the probationary year that the traditional religious orders had, probably because they wanted to get brothers into action as soon as possible. They couldn't afford to spare them for the year. And once you're in, you can only get out 
if, well, theoretically, if the Grand Master agrees, in fact, people, some people said they had to appeal to the Pope to leave. In fact, the order will boot you out if you're not behaving yourself. And if it's quite clear that somebody wasn't keeping the rule and couldn't cope with the rule, the order will be only too glad to see the back of them. They would also make you leave if it turned out you were married, because one of the things you have to swear is that you're not already married, or if you have substantial debts, because the order will not pay your debts. And they had the right to make you leave, because there's something else you have to promise when you come in. I do not already have some terrible disease, which is going to kill me in a few years. If they find out you've lied, they can make on admission, they can make you leave. So that's basically how they're admitted. Why do people join? Well, quite a few people during the trial of the Templars indicated that they had a relative in the order already who encouraged them to join. And that probably helps you get past the initial getting in level because they will speak up for you and say, I know my nephew, he's a very good person. The regulation that says, don't think you're necessarily going to get sent to Jerusalem, you could get sent anywhere, suggests that some people actually wanted to travel and see the holy places. There do seem to be a lot of pious brothers in the order. They joined they joined to serve God. And if you can serve God with your sword, you can still be a knight, but you can still serve God. You don't have to go into a monastery and pray. This is all to the good. And so, yes, you can go off and become God's knight. And you might be able to come home sometime and impress your family. Other reasons to join might be because one of your friends is joining and you're joining with them. And of course, if your employer is joining, you probably may be well fired. You have to join. You're not given any choice of the matter. I am now going to be a Templar, so you're joining too. And if you had a religious vocation, you wanted to serve God in any order, and Templars happen to be your closest order, you might just go and knock on the door and say, can I join you here? And if you were going to stay wherever you were, you might decide that actually it didn't matter you weren't going to go to Jerusalem because you just had the same religious life there as you would have in any other order. The Templars didn't take members from the Crusader states Generally, there are a few people who joined the order who were, as it were, from their locality in the Kingdom of Jerusalem, but generally they're recruiting from the West. Maybe that some people joined because it was a way for, to get social status. Because if you had nothing, if you came from a very poor family and you joined a military order, they would provide everything you needed. So the Bishop of Acre was complaining in one of his sermons, probably written in the 1220s. This is Jack de Vitry that some people who never had a pillow in real life, in, in normal life, joined the Templars, and now they expect to have a pillow all the time. And one brother, whose pillow was taken away from him because the pillowcase was being washed, spent the whole night complaining and kept everyone else awake. So people get very proud when they join this order. So you don't know whether that was an incentive. And because they are favoured by the high nobility and monarchy, it is possible that some people joined as a way into royal service. The kings of France used the Templars as their treasurers for a long time until the late 13th century, and then again in the early 14th century. And the kings of England also used the Templars for financial transactions. So um, that might be an incentive for joining too. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. They went out at a point where they were still regarded as glorious. They'd, yes, they'd been thrown out of the Holy Land, but they were going to try and get back. They were gathering resources to go back and suddenly they're destroyed by this terrible king of France. Can we move on to talk a little bit about what actually was the role of the Knights Templar and how did this change over time? Well, they kept on 
defending Christian territory in the East and defending pilgrims. And they carried on defending pilgrims right through until they lost the Holy Land in 1291. The problems that they found with defending the Holy Land on the battlefield was that they inevitably got drawn into politics because in the Crusader states there were different views on how best to defend the Holy Land. The Templars usually side with the king, but in retrospect we may look back and say some of the kings didn't have the best strategy, so they were criticised for that at the time and since. And after Saladin's conquests, they the Third Crusade did recover quite a bit of territory and the truce of 1192 left some sort of kingdom of Jerusalem in place, some sort of county of Tripoli and the principality of Antioch. But after that, the Crusader states were much, much reduced and the Templars and Hospitallers' political role became much more marked as there was far less kingdom and the rulers had less power. So they did come to the political forefront during the 13th century and a ruler who didn't have the support of at least one of the military orders was going to find themselves in a weak position. And if the military orders defied the monarch and said, no, that's not the policy we want to follow, then it was very difficult for them to enforce it. So this became a problem. And they were criticised by on by contemporaries for getting involved in politics. And when civil war broke out in the Holy Land, the Templars and Hospitalers ended up on different sides, so that they both get criticised for fighting each other. But they continued fighting Muslims and attempting to perform their military vocation until the very end. They fight heroically in the final defence of the city of Acre, which was the capital of the Kingdom of Jerusalem by then. So they went down fighting. and They also got involved in the so-called reconquest in the Iberian Peninsula. The kings of Aragon and of Portugal gave the Templars and the Hospitallers property and wanted their military support against the Muslims as they pushed the um, frontier of the Christian territory south against the Muslim territory. But the military orders had a problem with resources because, of course, their resources ought to go to the Holy Land. That's what they were set up for. So they didn't always have the resources to spare for other fronts. And in Castile, in fact, though they were active, they did have property, the lo locally founded military orders like the Order of Calatrava became much more important. Then they didn't really get involved in the northeastern frontier in Poland. That's where the Teutonic Order became established. Also because they're a religious order and they're moving resources about Catholic Europe to send things to the Holy Land, they also got involved in moving resources about for kings, for example, lending money to Louis VII of France during the Second Crusade, and then to merchants and the high nobility and bishops. So they get um, entrusted with people's money. It's not clear how much money they actually moved and whether they actually just transfer a piece of parchment that says so-and-so has entrusted this money to us at Paris, for example, and wants to withdraw it in Jerusalem. So it's only the bit of parchment that makes the transaction and not the money. Uh, it has been said, were the Templars the first international bankers they were certainly involved in international transactions and transfers from the 12th century onwards. I am not sure how far other groups have been involved in that before that, whether Jewish bankers would have done that for you, and how far the merchants of the Indian Ocean, the Muslim merchants, were doing transfers because they were very much involved in international trade. But certainly the Templars became famous for it in Europe, as in if you're a merchant and you have money here and you want to transfer it there, 
it seems the way of favour of doing it is take, sending it through the Templars. And the Templars, unlike some of the Italian banking families, did not go bankrupt because they're an institution. Whether they invested your money um, while it was in their keeping is another question which isn't so clear. It might be that actually they do lend some money out and then pay it back later. But the descriptions we have, for example, of the temple's treasury in London suggests that everybody's money was in separate boxes and Templars were not allowed to open the box. The owner has a key and the treasurer of the Templars at London has a key. And it seems to be that the Templars were regarded as very secure money keepers. What else do they get involved in? Well, they're heavily involved in agriculture and they did own quite a lot of property which was leased out. So they're also the dreaded landlords and they lent money to people that needed to borrow money at what looks to us now at being quite hideous rates of interest, but with actually normal rates of interest for the time. They weren't supposed to charge interest, so this was not called interest. It was a management fee. Of course, people complain about Templars as money lenders because people always complain about their bank. Did you ever meet anybody who was really happy with their bank, particularly if they've had to borrow money from them? What about in the localities? What would Templars be doing on a sort of day-to-day basis? Let's suppose, for example, um, Sutton and Essex. So the one or two Templars down in that little house, which is right on the salt marsh, will be responsible for checking that the tenants are paying their rents, making sure that... uh, the farm is working as it should. So the people who are responsible for ploughing it will be going out to plough it on a regular basis to make sure that it's not building up lots of weeds and keeping an eye on the livestock, uh, making sure that your plough animals are healthy and they use oxen or horses depending on the, lo- on the local soil. So you need to go out and check the animals are all right, check up on them, keep an eye on the people who are supposed to be keeping an eye on them. And then sort of a weekly basis, you have accounts to keep. And if there are four brothers, but I don't think there are at Sutton. I think Sutton only had two brothers. They would be meeting, if there's four brothers, they'd be meeting once a week for a general management meeting called a chapter meeting to discuss the business of the house. And anyone who has done anything against the rule is supposed to confess it. But I think probably in a place like Sutton, there is very little that they are likely to do unless someone's hit somebody, which falls under the rule. And, of course, they have their prayers to say during the course of the day. Um, Once a year, the commander of Sutton will be summoned up to London or wherever the general chapter meeting is being held. So they were initially held at New Temple in London. But as London grew and became a very busy place, the chapter meetings got moved outside. So you might be going to Hertfordshire instead. When you get to the general chapter meeting, you'll be expected to uh, render your account for your farm and what was money was paid in, what was paid out, and what livestock you've got, whom you're employing, and so on, what payment you've made, what rents you're due, what rents you're paying out. So the different houses are paying different things. I think there will be um, plenty of work on a day-to-day basis to keep people busy, because although it's what I say sounds like there aren't that many things going on, in fact, you're also monitoring all the staff in the house. So basically, it's like running a monastic estate. Whether you ever remember Jerusalem, I don't know. Once a year, Jerusalem gets mentioned when you get to the grand chapter, general chapter, and most of the time, you're in your little house out at the countryside. So 
there's something that we've been hinting at as we've been talking through throughout. And we've had several questions about this. One from the Golden from Golden on Instagram, which is how, when and why did the Knights Templar decline? Well, they didn't really decline. They lost Acre because the Kingdom of Jerusalem was conquered by the Mamluks. They were still trying to organise a new crusade. There is some information about the um, commander of the Auvergne in France organising naval expeditions out to the eastern Mediterranean. And the Grand Master had been round the rulers of Western Europe, so the Pope, the King of France, the King of Aragon, the King of England, trying to organise a new crusade so they could try to recapture the holy places of the East. There was some difference of opinion between the Templars and Hospitallers of the best way of doing this. Do we want a small expedition first? The Hospitallers went off and conquered Rhodes, for example, and set up a base on Rhodes, and then have a big expedition from there, or is it better just to have the big expedition? And the Templars had had a base on um, Arawad Island, or they call it Ruad, just off Tortosa, which is now in Syria. And that had been conquered by the Mamluks in the early 14th century. So the Templars were a bit cynical about the advantage of having a small base. And they were thinking, big expedition is what we need. Do you strike straight at Egypt? Do you ally with the Mongols, for example, who are launching expeditions into the Middle East from the east and maybe attack the Mamluks that way? So there was debate over how best to do this. And though the kings of England and France and Aragon were expressing interest, they weren't very anxious to invest resources. So the Templars were trying to organise a crusade, but they hadn't managed to organise a crusade. They had a lot of property. Rumour had it they had a lot of wealth because they had a lot of property, though the Templars would have told you that none of that money was actually in coin. It was all in land. And the King of France hadn't got any money either. And people were criticising him for not going on crusade. And he had an argument with the Pope. This is the previous Pope, Pope Boniface VIII, over the, his right or not to tax the French clergy. Arguably, the King of France won that one and the Pope died of fright. And the new Pope, Clement V, was trying to keep the peace between the King of France and the King of England. But he wasn't actually politically powerful enough to go to Rome, so he was in a weak position. And Philip IV may well have thought, I need the money. Those Templars aren't doing anything. And then there was a rumour that came out of um, Aragon from a man who had gone to the King of Aragon and said, oh, the Templars are beset with heresy. And the King of Aragon said, well, I know the Templars and they're not. Go away. And he said, no, no, you'll, you'll be sorry. They really are full of heresy and you'll be sorry you didn't listen to me. And the King of Aragon said, if you could prove these accusations, then you can come back and ask for some money, but otherwise get lost because the Templars are my faithful servants and I rely on them for my um, border controls to the south of the kingdom. So uh, this gentleman went to the King of France and Philip said, hmm, that's interesting, let's investigate that. And according to what Philip said later, he sent spies into the order of the temple to find out whether the accusations were true and he reported back and said they were. Now, Philip said this later on, so whether this is actually true, we do not know. There is a lot of spin going on at this point. What we do know is that on the 30th of September, 1307, Philip IV of France issued instructions to have the Templars all over France arrested at dawn on um, October the 13th, a month later, on charges of blasphemy and heresy and sodomy, which would effectively mean that they were not a religious order at all and that they had been fooling Christendom. And that, that was why they'd lost Acre and all these uh, the other holy places, because they weren't really a good holy order. 
with instructions to his officials to torture the Templars if they refused to confess. So the fact the initiative for destroying the Templars seems to have come from the King of France, not from the state of the Templars. We should also note that in August that year, so this is before, after the King of England died, but before the King of France issued his order for the arrest, the King of Portugal, where the Templars had a lot of property, had said that he wanted his properties back because the Templars were no longer running a crusade and though he had no longer got a boundary with the Muslims, they'd driven the Muslims out of Portugal, so he'd have his property back, please. And the Templars said no. But this meant that when the King of France issued his order for the arrest of the Templars, the King of Portugal then says, well, I'd already said I want my properties back, so I'll have my properties back, please. And the Templars in Portugal went on saying no. But that was the basis on which the Templars in Portugal got arrested, not so much because they were being pursued for heresy as they were in France, but because the King of Portugal actually thought, well, what's this order doing now? They're not doing anything useful, so I'll have my land back. As it turned out, in fact, after the Templars had been abolished and he'd set up a new religious order to look after their lands, it turned out to be extremely useful to him, but that is another story. So, yes, it's the King of France and what he wants from the Templars' lands and his propaganda war against the Pope because he wants control of the church in France, which seems to have been the origin of the trial of the Templars. Up until 1307, there were no accusations of that sort in circulation, uh, but the Templars were sitting on a lot of property and they had failed to get another crusade off the ground. And people were probably asking, it would be sensible to ask, what are they doing? The hospitalers had shown what the purpose of the order was because they went off and captured roads and claimed that it was going to be very valuable for them in recapturing the Holy Land. But it should be noted that they didn't. The Templars hadn't managed to do that. They seemed to have taken a different um, line and it didn't work for them. So that's why they get abolished, because they're unable to show that they are still useful. If they hadn't been abolished by the King of France, if they hadn't been attacked, they would probably just become a secular order serving kings, because that's what their brothers were mostly doing, acting as treasurers, acting as diplomats, acting as royal officials. One thing I'm really interested in, we've had lots of questions about actually, is the specific moment of the 13th of October. There seems to be a lot of mystery surrounding curses and the fact that the Friday the 13th is now unlucky because of that reason. Could you tell us a little bit more about what happened on that day? And are these are these just myths or is there some truth in them? Right, well, as far as the Friday the 13th thing goes, no, that's a later invention. I mean, Fridays have been regarded as unlucky, but that's because um, Jesus was crucified on a Friday. So that's why it seems as an unlucky day, not because the Templars were arrested then. And 13 is an unlucky number because it's one more than 12, and 12 is a good number, and 13 isn't. But it's why Philip chose a Friday the 13th, I don't know. And Philip wasn't very good at telling people why he was doing things. That was all part of his own mystique as the Capetian, most Christian king of France. So you, he invited speculation and got it. The so-called curse, this is first repeated two years after it happened, or supposedly happened, by a contemporary writer who claimed to be eyewitness of events. The, what was reported was that when the Grand Master Jacques de Molay was about to be burned at the stake with the commander of Normandy for having gone back on his confession, because if you 
were accused of heresy and you confessed, and then you went back on your confession, you were seen as being an obdurate heretic, a hardened heretic, and the only way to cleanse your soul was to burn you at stake. And the report was that he said that God knew that they were innocent and that God would judge their persecutors. So it wasn't exactly a curse, it was more of a prayer. Then within a year of his death, the Pope, Clement V, and the King of France, Philip IV, both died. And so we have this rumour circulating within two years of the master's death, at least being recorded within two years of the master's death, that that was why they died, because the master had said that God would judge their persecutors, and God had obviously judged them. And so the story has been in circulation ever since. I think it reflects a feeling that the way the Templars were dealt with was unjust, that this is a story that hasn't been properly finished. It hasn't been tidied up. Humans don't like that. Stories need to finish properly. If people die suddenly and disappear suddenly, like the stories of King Arthur, he's not he's been defeated, he's been carried away, he has to come back and win. So we have to have him going away and King Arthur will return. And the same of Frederick Barbarossa, the great emperor of Germany, who died on his way to the Third Crusade. He must come back. He can't have died then. Besides, he was a long way out of his home country when he died, and this is not right. So he should return to us. And when a story is felt to be unfinished and unjust, people keep trying to run it over and over again. It's got to work right this time. This time the Templars will be all right. This time the Templars will be justified. There has to be a reason for it. So we have to find a reason why the King of France went after them. It can't be like contemporaries said, because he wanted their money. The great King of France wouldn't attack the Templars just because he wanted their money. He wouldn't attack the Pope just because he wants his money. No, he must have had a real reason. They must have been corrupt. They must have been heretics. Alternatively that the Templars must have had some wonderful secret knowledge and they wouldn't tell the King of France because he wasn't worthy of it. And that's why he destroyed them, because he was jealous. And so possibly jealousy was something to do with it, but not on that basis of it being magic or mystical. Uh, During the course of the trial, none of the Templars came up with a reasonable explanation for the charges brought against them. And it would have been their opportunity to do so. I mean, they could easily have explained that these charges actually were based in some ceremony which had a proper basis. Okay, in France, they were being tortured, so they weren't given an opportunity to explain anything. But in Aragon, where they were very, there was very little torture used, and in Italy and in England, there was no torture used, or at least in England, not till the very end. So, and only on a few brothers. So they had adequate ex- opportunity to say, no, 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 they misunderstood. So they had adequate opportunity to explain, but nobody came up with explanations. And the obvious answer to why that was is because there wasn't an explanation. These things did not happen. They did not blaspheme. They did not deny Christ. There was no sodomy beyond what monastic orders normally had. Uh, And there wasn't any of the corruption that they were accused of. For some of these charges, there may have been on-the-spot personal reasons why this charge was put in there, but we don't know any of these things now at such a great distance. We haven't got this information. Just a quick question here. What actually happened to the Templars afterwards? Was the order fully eradicated or did brothers join other orders? It depends which country they were in. In France, 50 of the brothers who had gone back on their confessions in order to defend the order which they had been instructed to come forward to to defend the order if they wanted to, and some of them did come forward to defend the order, were then, um, under the orders of the Archbishop of Sens, taken out and burned 
as obdurate heretics because they'd gone back on their confessions. This obviously stopped the defence movement. Uh, according to two sources in France, one of the Templars and somebody who tried to defend the order, their 36 brothers died under torture rather than confess to anything. So in France, the brothers had a bad time. And some, some of them were sent away to prison for the rest of their lives, although they had confessed and had um, been absolved, their absolution was on condition that they were in prison. In England and in Ireland, and there weren't any Templars in Wales, and the Templars in Scotland were brought back to England to hear the uh, final decision about, about them. In England, at any rate, they were told to abjure all heresies, and the Master of England and the Master of the Auvergne refused to do that because they'd had nothing to do with heresy. They said, so there's nothing to abjure, so we're not abjuring things we haven't done. So they stayed in prison because they wouldn't abjure. But the ones who abjured or swore off heresy were sent off to do penance in monasteries. So effectively, they were moved to new religious orders, but they had to keep their Templar vows and they had to continue to wear the habit. And they were given a pension of fourpence a day, which was used to pay for their living expenses. Well, some of the Templars didn't settle down and were quite a disruptive element. And after a few years, the Pope allowed them to join another Templar, another house, if they wanted to. Um, in Aragon, they seem to be allowed to go back to their Templar houses and stay there, and they get their pensions. And some of them got married, which the Pope, when he finds out, is most indignant, says you're supposed to be religious men, you're not allowed to marry. But of course, they're all to be dissolved. So, I mean, what were they expected to do? In Italy, there are some references to Templars having gone home to their families and to be found wandering about the streets. That they'd back, just gone back home and they've given up their vows and they're just living as ordinary people in Italy. Some of the Templars in the East, in Cyprus, came back to the West. So they were sent back home, as it were, by the King of Cyprus. Some of the leading Templars in Cyprus got involved in a plot against the King to depose him. And this is detected and they were... Um, either imprisoned or killed. So some people just can't keep out of trouble. So yes, it varied depending on where they were. We've had a question here from Saima Asan on Facebook. There's so many listeners' questions about this one. Lots and lots. I'm going to condense them down into one, which is what have been the most popular and enduring Templar myths and conspiracy theories? Recently, there seems to be a new myth about the Templars' supposed head, which is one of the charges that are brought against them for which there is no evidence except that they venerated saints' heads, which everybody did, so that's not unusual. And so people have been emailing me and telling me that the skull and crossbones is a Templar symbol, symbol which it certainly isn't. So there's new, new myths all the time. The Masonic Order, yes, they have a grade of the Knights Templar, don't they? And that I would trace this back to the in fact, the Templars were dissolved, but that there's this enduring feeling that they can't have been dissolved, they can't have gone because it's so unjust. So we can't let them be destroyed. We have to continue them in some way and in some way continue their good work and their desire to marry physical fighting with spiritual fighting so that these we have holy knights who fight for God, which is what everybody needs to do in their daily life, that sort of idea. As far as the Templars of the Holy Grail goes, this is a language issue because the great German poet Wolfram von Eschenbach rewriting the, the, the story of the Holy Grail, which had originally been written down by Chrétien de Troyes, who's a very important French poet in the second half of the 12th century, operating in Troyes, which is the area where the Templars originally started, of course. Uh, Wolfram von Eschenbach rewrote the story of the Grail a little bit so that 
his grail castle, when you get there, is guarded by a Templizer, sort of temple people. Well, people said, oh, these must be the Templars. However, actually, the German word for Templars was Tempelherren, Temple Lords, not Templizer. But Wolfram obviously intended people to hear an echo of Templars there. And the fact they have doves on their shield rather than a cross on their shield shows that they're not Templar knights as we know them. They're a different sort of new sort of Templar, a peaceful Templar. And Wolfram's story very much ends on this. It's going to be a peaceful relationship because one of his leading characters, who's a Muslim, marries the Grail Maiden, and so Christianity and Islam are going to be unified. So that is actually the only connection between the Templars and the Grail, apart from a late 13th century story, Son de Nanze, which features Templars and also mentions the Templar ca- castle, but they are not in that story connected in any way. The Templars are Templars come in at one point of the story, and the, t- the Grail castle is mentioned at another point of the story. In that story, in fact, the Grail has ended up in Norway. Do not ask me how it got there. The real Templars are not involved in the Holy Grail at all. But you can understand that people thinking about the myth of this Grail, which seems to represent Christ and can't now be found, and the Templar Order, which was destroyed in a great act of injustice and has now disappeared, but we wish it hadn't, we wish it would come back. You just marry those two together and get a super myth of something that you want, that you're seeking. And I mean, many of the spin-offs of this are brilliant in their own way, but they don't actually say tell us anything very much about the real order, except that, yes, it was clearly a very good idea because the whole idea of the Holy Knight has endured. People keep coming back to it and wanted to rewrite it and adapt it to whatever they want it to be. I think one of the things about the Templars is that they have really, really endured. They're so much a part of pop culture. You see things like um, National Treasure, the Da Vinci Code. You've got them in the Assassin's Creed games. We've got a question from Mr. Murphy, and this will be my final question for you. But why are we still fascinated by the Templars? I think if they continued to exist, that people would not be so fascinated they went out at a point where they were still regarded as glorious. They'd Yes, they'd been thrown out of the Holy Land, but they were going to try and get back. They were gathering resources to go back, and suddenly they're destroyed by the terrible king of France. And the Pope doesn't protect them, but the Templars go out at, at this moment of glory. And in fact, their last one glorious moment is in their defence of their tower in Aco in 1291, when they realised that they were besieged they had no way of getting getting in any assistance, and the only thing to do was to have a glorious last stand. They prayed, they commended their souls to God, they charge out to fight the Muslims, and they're all killed. Now, of course, there are still Templars on Cyprus and in the rest of Europe, but this just means that the ones on, in Acre died gloriously fighting for God. And that is the, the note on which the order goes out. So, yes, I think that is why the myth has continued, whereas the orders that have actually continued, the Hospitalists, the Teutonic Order, still exist. The Spanish orders still exist, the secular orders merit us. They're not in the public eye in the same way. The, the sovereign order of Malta does good work all around the world and has the associated Protestant orders who also do good work over the whole world, but they're not remembered in the same way because they're still operating and they're doing quite mundane things and things that don't necessarily... Yes, um, running an eye hospital is a wonderful thing to do but it doesn't quite capture the imagination, like death and glory charges against the enemy. 
that's why the people concentrate on the Templars. There's also the point the Templars can't sue you because there aren't any Templars. Whereas if you start making up stories about the hospitalers, they may indeed sue you. They can still do that. That was Helen Nicholson, Professor of Medieval History at Cardiff University. If you enjoyed this conversation, you might also be interested in our Everything You Want to Know episode on the Crusades. You can find that by searching for the Crusades in your podcast feeds. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.